In the, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, you often find Jesus' famous kingdom parables. He will often say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Later on, he will say, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. And so on. Jesus is describing one thing in different, through different parables. The kingdom of God is like this. And then he'll shift gears altogether and he said, it's like something completely different, but it's the same. And what Jesus is doing is similar to what we find in the book of Revelation. You have a whole host of images that are describing the same thing. For example, the two witnesses we saw described the, the, the church of Jesus Christ down through the ages as they bore witness to the gospel. Jesus sent his, his, his servants out two by two. They went out bearing witness to the gospel. We saw the affliction that came against those two witnesses just as Satan will attack the church today. We saw that the, the church in all ages was described earlier on as uh, the 24 elders, the 10 the 12 from the Old Testament and the 12 from the New Testament, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, making up the covenant community in both. This morning we're seeing that the covenant community is seen as and described as a woman ready to give birth. It's much like we just read in these parables, that the kingdom of heaven is like this, and then it's like that, and it's like something else. So you've, you have completely different images to describe another dimension of the same thing. You often hear the, the old songs, my love is like a red, red rose. Well, you're not to imagine that the, the man loves a red, red rose, but it describes something of his loved one. He goes on, he might talk about his loved one in, in some other way. And, and so on. And so you have these different representations of what the person is. You can go to the Song of Solomon, for example, and find the, the beloved being described in many, many different ways. Probably ways that we wouldn't describe our uh, husbands or wives today. But uses multiple different images to describe one thing. And, and so the church in Revelation is described as the 24 elders. It's described as the, 20, the, the, the two witnesses. And here this morning, uh, we see uh, the church being described as this woman. And it's a, 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 he says there at the beginning, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains 
and the agony of giving birth. Now, the immediate thought might come to our minds that this is describing Mary. And yet, the language bursts its banks, as it were. It, go, it, it cannot be describing one person. It's symbolic. And that's why he uses the language, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. We've been trying to see the book of Revelation uh, on its own terms. In terms of what the Bible says about how we interpret these images. Roman Catholic Church, for example, have taken this to be Mary as the Queen of Heaven giving her an exalted position in redemptive history. And even Roman Catholic scholars now seem to be moving away from that idea that this is actually an exalted picture of Mary. If you take it in terms of what we've already been seeing, the principles that we've already been applying, you look for these uh, symbols somewhere else. We saw um, how uh, the Old Testament church was described by the twelve tribes of Israel. And there was a story in Genesis where Joseph, for example, he, is, he has this dream. And uh, in the dream, he sees that the, the sun and the moon and the stars all bow down to him. That those images represent collectively the patriarchs, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, summing up the Old Testament community of God's people. And what you find here is simply another manifestation of what we saw in chapter 11 as here is the church in another form and describing her in another way. In chapter 11, we see her as two witnesses that are bearing witness to the truth of the Gospel down through the centuries and incur the persecution of the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the creature that comes up out of the abyss. Uh, the devil himself who makes war against the church. When we come to chapter 12, it's as if we are hearing Jesus say that the kingdom of God, again, is like a woman who gives birth to a child. And this dragon appears to, cons to rise up to seek to consume the child. It's, though, it's along those lines that we are to see these interpret these things that we're finding in the book of Revelation. And so what do, we, what do we find in the Old Testament? We find that the people of God, the church, Israel, are, is described like a woman. In fact, God is described as a husband to Israel, isn't he? And Israel is often charged with going off and committing adultery on God going off to this nation and that nation and, and uh, 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 bowing down to this idol and that idol. And God has described this, the, the, the 
his people in those terms. But also, the, the Bible describes the nation of Israel as a woman in the pains of childbirth. Where after having been taken off into Babylon, where the numbers went down, God is saying to this woman Israel, enlarge your tents, enlarge the borders of your tents, because you're going to have more children. In uh, Isaiah, for example, Isaiah chapter 66, uh, just at the very end, God says, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Uh, in verse 9, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord. So there and in many other places, Israel is described as a woman. And the inclusion of the sun and the moon and the stars hearken back to the original Old Testament family, the sons of Jacob, from whom came the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Levi, and all these other tribes. All the people of God coming out and down from that. And so she here is pregnant and in the pains of childbirth. So for all these many years, there was an expectancy so that in the fullness of time, there was born Jesus from the tribe of Judah. And so you have that language of Joseph going down to Bethlehem because he was of the house of David. He was of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus' birth is strongly connected to all the history that went before. One commentator, Douglas Kelly, said that the Old Testament Israel was pregnant with Christ for thousands of years. Israel was being used as a womb from which the Messiah would be born. So we see that the language goes beyond any one individual. It's the, the, the language goes beyond, just as the two witnesses go beyond two individuals. They can't be contained in two people. And we saw that with their dead bodies lying in the great city, which is called Sodom, which is called Jerusalem, which is called uh, by, 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 by different names. Meaning it's a worldwide application of persecution. It can't be just two people, those two witnesses. And neither is this woman contained in one person, but represents the church of God in all ages. And so she is here seen as the Old Testament church waiting to give birth to the Messiah. The woman is symbolic of the nation of Israel in general. But that's not to say that Mary is not included in that. She is very much a part of that, isn't she? She's very much a, one of the leading, outstanding members of that community. But it's, it goes beyond one simple person to take in a collective group of people, including ourselves. 
And so the whole of the Old Testament, as it's described as a woman married to God, is now the instrument. So Jesus says to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews. And so this is the first person that we're introduced to in this uh, uh, great story of the woman and the dragon. And so she is very elevated. She is very exalted. She, she has a glory that is derived from God Himself. But again, a glory that cannot be contained by one person. It's that which is shared by the church of Jesus. And so you go into the Psalms and say, look at the city of Jerusalem. Look at the people of God. Walk around her and consider her walls and her ramparts. She is the beauty of all the earth. That's how the church, that's how the people of God in the Old Testament are described. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And so what we're taught here is we're, we're drawing our attention to uh, more than one person. And like I say, just as we were with the witnesses. We're taught to see more than two people. Two witnesses are emblematic of something more broad. And so we see, secondly, another great sign appeared. Notice the language of sign. It's, it's, it's pointing us to something else, just as the signs did on the way to church this morning. Hopefully you know your way here already, but there's still signs along the road saying, go here, go there. The sign isn't the place. The sign is telling you it's 10 miles this way. And neither is the sign the reality. And so he describes something else here. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. When we come to this image of this red dragon, we are taught to see a creature, an ungodly creature, with great power and strength. We see that it's described as a dragon with seven heads. There is that, again, that perfect number. Ten horns. Again, a number of completeness. And on his head, seven diadems. The Bible tells us that the devil is the god of this world. Jesus talked a great deal about the devil and the devil's work. We need not go very far than to turn on our television at night and to see what's going on in our world. We can go back in recent history to the massacre in Rwanda or back before that to the Vietnam War or the Holocaust. And on and on it goes. Paul Potts, Cambodia. And many things that are going on today. We ask ourselves, 
How does man do that to man? Even in the 20th century, which was to be our century, with the, with the onslaught of innovation and education and learning and all the rest of it, there wouldn't be any need for war. And the First World War dispelled us of that notion quite quickly. And you say, is there something behind that? Is that random? Is that just evolution at work? The survival of the fittest? And no. We're taught in the Word of God that there is a, a, a power behind it that's ugly. That's ferocious. And it's, he's described here as in this way. Now we're not to imagine, again, that there's some place down in the bowels of the earth where there is this creature with seven heads and, and uh, 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 as it says here, uh, uh, ten horns and uh, seven diadems. But just like the woman and all the other images, it's conveying an impression to us. A, an impression of an insatiable appetite for destruction. This is... Uh, 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 true of the devil himself. As Peter says that we are to beware of the devil for he goes about like a roaring lion. There's another image. Seeking whom he may devour. But he, he wears this, the, these insignia of dominion. He has crowns. He has diadem. He has all these things as he claims authority in this world. And to a large extent, he does. As he works through governments, as he works through corporations, as he works through education, as he works through in, in situations like war and many of these other uh, things. And so uh, the devil uh, is pictured in this way. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. He is at work around us. He is at work in many, many different aspects of our world and world history. We see going back to the very beginning of the book of the, uh, the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter three, how uh, we see in Genesis three. The Lord said to the woman, this is 3.13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And then he goes on and he says there, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And so just at the beginning of time, as we see this serpent being introduced, so we see at the end of time the, 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 the devil asserting himself once again. And he, he is described this way so that we will not take him for granted. The worst thing that we can do is trivialize the devil. Because he has real power. He has real wisdom. And he, ha he has an insatiable appetite to destroy. And when we think of what we do here Sunday after Sunday, friends, when a message, the message of the Word of God, wherever we are, 
Old or New Testament, we are holding up Jesus. And that message is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It's a moving of someone out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And when you see it in those terms, it means that the devil is very interested in what's going on here. We are not to imagine that it only has to do with the Holocaust or with the Rwandan genocide or those things. We've been, we surely have been seeing throughout Revelation that the devil's interest, first and foremost, is to keep people from hearing the gospel and blind them to that in some possible way. Distract them. It's not for you. You're too educated for that. You're too sophisticated for that. It's not your time. Maybe at a later date. Never does the devil work so ferociously. And when we find him in the Garden of Eden saying to the man and the woman, did God really say? He was never more the red dragon than he was there. Red has to do with the color of blood. We already saw that with the red horse coming to make war and bring death and so on. And what do we see right after Adam and Eve believe the devil? Chapter 3, chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Where Cain kills his brother. He rises up and puts him to death in a most vicious way. And this is what we see here. We see the, the, the woman introduced. We see the dragon introduced. And then we see the great conflict. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Again, this is a, a, a point that's disputed among commentators. Some think it is the, the occasion when the devil initially fell from heaven and took a third of the angels with him. Others see it in connection to a passage in Daniel where he killed some of the saints, some of the people of God. Regardless of what it, it is pointing to, it is describing, the, again, the, the power that lies within the dragon himself. And his desire, it says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The devil knew. The devil is conscious because of that great evangelistic or that evangelical passage in Genesis 3 where the gospel was preached first not to the man or the woman, but to the devil directly. He understood from that point that there would come a seed from the woman, not only Eve, but from the the body of God's people that would spell the end to him. And so what do we find? We find the dragon, as it were, standing over the woman, ready to devour the child that she brings forth. And out of that, the devil, out of that passage there, his desire in Je after Genesis 3, is to wholly consume the seed of the woman. Where does that manifest itself then? It manifests itself in Egypt, where Pharaoh uh, said, if there be any male children born, 
throw them in the river. A wholesale desire to destroy the people of God. You have it with Haman in the book of Esther, uh, where he wanted to wipe out the whole community of Jews because he hated them so much. And these periods of time where the people of God became so far down in number, it seemed like their possible extinction. The devil was working to destroy the seed of the woman. And and the woman, throughout Old Testament history, is seeking to bring that male child, that seed that would destroy the serpent, to fruition. To bring him into the world. So you have thousands of years of Old Testament history, hundreds of years of Old Testament history, where there is this ebb and flow, where the where the red dragon comes on strong to destroy the seed, to wipe them out. Then you have other times where where, where the woman is groaning and travailing. And and, And it's like in Revelation, John is saying the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a red dragon hovering, seeking to destroy and consume, while the woman in childbirth throughout the history of Israel is pushing and in pain and crying out, seeking to bring forth this child. Then in the fullness of time, when the woman is ready to give birth, there is the red dragon working through the powers that be, like Herod. The wise man come, as Tim read for us there in chapter 2 of Matthew. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And as soon as Herod hears this, he wants to destroy the child because he doesn't want any, anyone competing with him. He doesn't want any rivals to his authority. Was Herod consciously thinking of the plan of the red dragon, of of Satan himself? No. But he was definitely being used by Satan. He was definitely being used by the one who was pictured as the red dragon to bring out uh, his plan and purposes. He was using Herod's appetite for power. Just as he uses people's appetite for power today to destroy Jesus said as much. The thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Do you see in these verses how we we have not just the Bethlehem situation, but we have the whole scope of Old Testament history described for us in six verses. And then we have the whole of New Testament history described for us in six verses. So you have this uh, uh, drama that's playing itself out as the woman, the church, the Old Testament church, the Old Testament covenant community, through her ups and downs, is often in danger of being swallowed up or devoured. But she is preserved by God. She is kept by God until she brings forth this male child who will rule the nations 
And that is the beginning of the end for the dragon. We'll say later on in this chapter, Woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great fury. Why? Because he knows his time is short. Because the man-child, Jesus, the Son of God, has been born in Bethlehem. He who would rule the nations and put an ultimate end. And we've been seeing how that will come to pass there in chapter 11. God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple and so on. And then back in verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever. We saw what that would look like at the end of chapter 7. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water and wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what the man-child has come to do. And this is what Satan has sought so desperately to bring to an end. To devour. The idea there is to completely consume. He devoured that sandwich. There's nothing left. It's not half of the sandwich there. It's not part of the sandwich. He devoured that sandwich. It's all gone. This is what the devil wants to do. Now, it's not to say that the devil doesn't harass Jesus or harass the church. We've been seeing that. We are persecuted. The church is persecuted. We read on a daily basis in our church notes that the the church is a persecuted body of believers. He's not saying that we're exempt from that here. And we'll see that here in a moment. It, it, It says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Jesus is... He, he goes to a cross. He is nailed to that cross, fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis 3 where the serpent will, would crush, bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He, goes, he pays the price for our sins. He goes down into the grave. He rises on the third day, triumphant over death triumphant over everything that would stand in our way, and in Him we are victorious. And now He is caught up. Look at what it says. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. There is the ascension of Jesus. You read about it in the Gospels in the book of Acts as Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. What happens to the church? And this is why we insist on saying it's not Mary, it's not one individual, it is a body of people. 
Jesus says to his disciples and to all believers who would come after, you're going to, because you believe in me, you're going to be recipients of lots of trial and tribulation, persecution. But you will not be devoured. The woman fled into the wilderness so we can say the church entered into a period of wilderness journeyings where just like Old Testament Israel had the heat of the desert, the cold nights, the the, uh, rodents and the beasts nipping at their heels and uh, the weariness of the wilderness travel, the church now over this 2,000 years since Jesus left also enters into a period of wilderness journeys where we are crushed but not destroyed. That's the idea here where she is taken into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God where she will be nourished. Does it mean she will go without harm? No. She will still be persecuted. But it goes back to what I said about the devouring. We are, we are crushed, but we are not uh, destroyed. How does Jesus keep us? Well, we know that in this world we will have tribulation. History proves it. The 6 o'clock news proves it. Voice of the martyrs prove it. It's, but how does he keep us then? You might say, well, that's where I want to be protected. But Jesus says there's something even more valuable. What does it profit a man if he should gain the world and lose his soul? It is here where we are nourished, friends. This is why we're here today. And many of you have had occasion in your life where you felt like throwing in the towel and saying, I'm not going back to that church. I'm not going, I've, I've had enough, I've come to the end. Life is just too hard, too crushing. But here you find yourself all over again, and why? Because you are upheld by the power of God in your soul. You are still thanking God and praising God and hoping in God. You've struggled with loss. You've struggled with sickness and disease. You've struggled with all manner of difficulty. All manner of demonic oppression in your life where the devil has tried to get at you through your work or your family or your friends or whatever, and you have endured a great deal of pain at his hand. But you're here. And you're hoping. And you're rejoicing. And what's happening? You're in the desert wilderness. A place prepared by God where you are nourished in the things that matter. Not specifically in this old body, which, don't get me wrong, is still part of God's plan. We've spoken about it before. But it's your soul. And that's why Jesus laid it on the line. What is a prophet in man should gain the world and lose his soul? And he says, I'm keeping your soul. I'm protecting your soul. So that whatever, however the devil comes at you, 
I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will nourish you. I will feed you in church. I will bless you at home. I will be there when you bow your head in prayer. I will be at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And I will give you my body and my blood. I will give you my spirit to encourage you. I will nourish you in the things of your soul. Though you be in a wilderness, it is a place that I have prepared for you. And if you're in the wilderness, just like the people of Israel, you'll come out of that wilderness into a land flowing with milk and honey. You'll come to a place that has been prepared for you, just as the ancient Israelites did. God says, you're going into a land to houses you didn't build, wells you didn't dig, fields you didn't plant, and you're just going to walk in. And so Jesus says to us, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what He's doing here. That's what Christmas is all about. Charlie Brown. That when we look at this, we're seeing the scope of redemptive history in six verses. And we're seeing our own wilderness wanderings. We have a veil that's pulled back to see what's really at play in our lives. The principalities and powers that are arrayed against us. Arrayed against your soul. Oh, how precious is your soul today? Boys and girls, men and women. The devil wants it. He'll give you anything for it. And so, he gives us spiritual weapons then. The weapons of our warfare, says Paul, are not carnal, not physical, but mighty in God. That is the Word. Paul says, it is the power of God unto salvation. And when people pray, we saw that in chapter 11, when they pray and preach the Word, fire comes down. He's not literal fire, but he's, he's saying the saints move heaven and earth with their prayers. Heaven is moved by your prayer when you cry out. Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. And so this is where we are. This is our opponent. This is what we're up against. But greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. That's the message here. He who would rule the nations. A child has been born. And when that child was born, that was the end for the red dragon. He tried for hundreds of years to consume the people of God. To destroy that seed. In Egypt, in Babylon, under Haman and all the rest. Herod sought to destroy all the children under two years of age. God warned Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt. There he was protected for a number of months and then he says, spoke to Joseph again, the one who was seeking your life has died. Now come back up. See, he was protecting, he was keeping, he was nourishing. That it might be spoken of the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. And that can be said for you and I. Out of Egypt, I have called my children. 
through the blood of the Lamb we come. By the power of the Spirit we come. By the Word of God we come. We are nourished. We are built up. We are kept. We are blessed. And so as we pull back the curtain on what was happening in Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the lie. Really? Well, it was that night physically, but you pull back the curtain. What do you see? The red dragon poised over, ready to destroy. And God winning the victory through weakness, through the weakness of His Son, through the sacrifice of His Son. And if we were saved by the death of His Son, how much more now being saved shall we be delivered through His life as He sits at the right hand of God. This is what... This is our joy, friends. This is why we say joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her rightful King. Not the pretender. Not the usurper of the devil. He can have no place here. He can have no place in our lives. He is the usurper. He is the, the, the mocker with His crowns and with His authority. But as Tolkien described, with the return of the King, Jesus has come back to reclaim His rightful throne of this world and in our hearts. And I pray that that is true for you and I this morning as we see, as we see ourselves in this. As we see the, the ferocity of the evil one even this morning and the provision that God has made for you to escape the male child who was to be born and rule the nations. I pray that He's ruling each one of our hearts here today as we look to Him by faith. Well, let us pray.